Hello and welcome to the Scottish Politics Podcast. My name's David Clegg, I'm the political editor of The Daily Record and your host. And I'm in Strasbourg today for a special edition of the podcast. This week was meant to be the last week of Scottish representation at the European Parliament and I'm joined by two of our finest representatives. From the SNP, I have Alan Smith. Bienvenue. And from the Labour Party, I have David Martin. Good morning. Thank you very much to both of you for joining me. There is a lot to discuss. Uh, I, I think it's fair to say that nobody is too sure what exactly is happening with Brexit, and I'm delighted that you two are going to be able to clear it all up for us uh, in, the <laughs> next, in the next half hour or so. Uh, so I'll start, I'll start with you, Alan. First of all, I should say thank you for hosting. We are in Alan Smith's lovely office at the European Parliament building in Strasbourg today. Looking pretty sparse this weather, I'm afraid, but yeah. uh, we've, we've not been able to put that much of a show on for you. That's quite all right. I've, I've been well welcomed uh, elsewhere. Uh, but so we'll start with you, Alan. What do you think is the position at the minute? Clear Clearly it's quite a fluid situation. I should say that we're recording this on Wednesday afternoon, so the votes that are scheduled to take place in the Commons this evening have not yet happened. But with that in mind, Alan, if you could just lay out exactly where you think we are, that would be great. Thank you. Well, it's. I was at an event in Holyrood actually on Friday last, where they actually broke us into groups and worked out well, what to try and work out what we're doing next. And our consensus was, well, geez, if I, if I was going to Tipperary, I wouldn't start out from here. But the, the original sin, the original mistake, was David Cameron calling the referendum in the first place, when there clearly wasn't any political leadership about what the UK or our nation, however you define it, wanted out of this which was compounded by Mrs May triggering Article 50 without any idea of what she wanted out of the end state of the negotiations. So the fact that we've got the MPs at Westminster, and I think many of them are, are, are genuinely trying, from all points of the compass to be fair, to try and reach some sort of settled will of the Westminster Parliament on what it wants for the future relationship. Well, good luck to them, but where was that two years ago? That should have been done before this process was started. All Mrs May's deal tells us is about the exit. So it's you settle your debts, you get out... You enter into a transition period. Northern Ireland's looked after in terms of respecting the Good Friday Agreement, uh, which has been an absolute priority for Dublin within these talks. And if, if Brexit's shown us anything, it's just how powerful Ireland has been as part of the 27 against the UK. But the MPs are going to unite around a consensus which is an aspiration for the future, which is good, which is welcome, if they actually unite around anything at all, and that's a big if. But even if they do... It's not binding. It won't be binding. It can't be binding. The only deal that's in front of them is to exit and then to try and work out what the future is in a two-year period. And we've kind of been here before. Yeah. The exit was the easy bit. It's that what comes next is going to make it real to people, where it'll become real to people that the existentialism of Brexit stops because it'll have happened. So we'll have lost the MEPs, we'll have lost the representation. The doors in Brussels and Strasbourg will have closed to us. And by us, I mean Scottish universities, companies, charities, organisations, citizens. And then we start to realise what we've lost and what we're about to lose. And I've got a a stack of letters from UK ministers where I've been quite deliberate about putting down on record, well, can you give me an assurance minister that we will maintain our arrangements to keep us in the Erasmus programme? Or pet passports, or all sorts of wacky stuff, or the European health insurance cards. And the response on all of them is, well, it's possible to keep that, and that is our aspiration. But it's going to come down to budget choices of the UK government over the next two years. And I fear that that's going to go badly. So if we unite around something that they call Brexit, well, sadly, that doesn't mean Brexit stops. It means that the the real negotiations actually start. Would you take issue with anything Alan said there, David? 
Not really. I mean, the, firstly, the, the point about we won't know what we've got till it's gone is kind of like the big yellow taxi song, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Don't you always, does it always seem to go, but you don't know what you've got till it's gone. And that's, I think, the good news about Brexit is people are beginning to realise what they're losing before it's gone. Mm-hmm. Whether it's too late to change the process or not, I don't know, but we certainly should be doing everything possible to stop the process. As you know, as we speak, we leave on the 12th of April uh, if there is no agreement without a deal. If we somehow the Prime Minister gets her deal through the House of Commons, we leave on the 22nd of May with a deal. My view is that both these dates are completely artificial uh, and have been imposed on us by the incompetence of the Prime Minister. She would say it's been imposed by the European Council, but it's her incompetence that's led them to set these, what I regard as artificial deadlines. And what I'd like to see happen, frankly, is for the House of Commons, ideally, uh, and I don't for a minute believe this is at the moment going to happen, but ideally I'd like to see the House of Commons take Article 50 off the table, revoke it, and get to the point where... We either put it back to the people and say, do you want to start this process again? Or we say, how do we now get ourselves back into the whole European system? How do we make the European Union, uh, how do we reform it? Because nobody's arguing that we keep the European Union exactly as it is. But as a full member with MEPs, with uh, votes in the council, with a commissioner, we can shape the European Union. We've already been doing that. It's not as if Europe has been something that has been done to us anyway. We're, we're a big part of where Europe is today, but we could we could reform it, we could still make it better if we decide to fully engage our energies that we've wasted over the last two years in the Brexit process in actually trying to make Europe into something that we would be proud of. You are quite far away from Labour Party policy there, would you say? I mean, are you frustrated with where the leadership are on this? Because they're not saying revoke Article 50, certainly. Well, they're not saying that, that yet, because the, the party position, which I understand why that is the party position, which is to uh, do everything possible to get what has now been termed a soft Brexit. I don't actually think there is a soft Brexit, but what they're calling a soft Brexit, which is still being part of the customs union, still being part of the single market, which is half the battle, but it's not, in my opinion, enough. Uh, So I understand why they want to argue that case and respect the outcome of the, the referendum. They've also said that if they can't deliver that, then they would support a people's vote. And I, I, again, have no objection at all that, in fact, would support a people's vote. But I don't think the parameters in which we're operating at the moment, the timescale we're now in, allows us to have a people's vote and still have Article 50, the Article 50 clock ticking. So my view is get rid of Article 50. Of course, you can relodge it at any, any point, but take it off the table. Start the process at the beginning, if you really want to, which I hope you wouldn't, but if you really want to, avoid some of the mistakes that Alan has talked about. Firstly, start talking to your European partners about the future arrangement before you actually launch Article 50. Start explaining to the people what the consequences of launching Article 50 would be. Uh, generally get a more sensible debate. And Gordon Brown, of course, uh, it's kind of been lost now, but about six months ago, called for some form of commission mm-hmm. to examine the the context in which Brexit could take place or whether it should take place and have a really deep and understand an in-depth analysis of the whole process and yeah, yeah not just the benefit of hindsight but with the benefit of hindsight you could say that's where we should have been before we started this process but actually many of us said that at the beginning of the process. Indeed. Alan I was struck by you saying that the what we're doing here is the easy bit and the hard bit is still to come given the convulsions that British politics has experienced doing the easy bit uh, it suggests that there could be some apocalyptic things coming down the track. Uh, truly uh, that, that, that that's not 
putting it too highly. With the the way that the UK government has torn up the devolution settlement for Wales and Northern Wales and, and Scotland and obviously Northern Ireland's uh, specific situation, the Henry VIII clauses that are going to give unparalleled power to junior ministers with really very little oversight over a lot of this stuff. And we've already seen, and, and it, it, it is an outlier, but I think it is symptomatic of what we're looking at, Chris Grayling awarding uh, ferry contracts to a company that didn't have any ferries in clear, flagrant breach of the procurement regs. Now, that's not an EU thing. That's a value for the public purse thing. And if the response of the UK government to any issues that it, that it has problems with is to throw public money at it, then we're in a bad place. And trade policy isn't an esoteric, not esoteric far away thing. David knows, David's forgotten more about this than I know about trade policy. But this is going to be the nuts and bolts relationship that we will have with the EU and indeed the wider world. And the choice that has not been made yet because the Tories have deliberately not faced up to the, the, the dichotomy in their own position is that either you, the closer relationship you have with the EU single market the less ability you'll have to strike these fantasy trade deals with other places in the wider world. And that's why we're still not hearing about these fantasy trade deals that will somehow deliver better results than the EU system has done, because it's working really well for us. So we're, we're looking at some really tough stuff, and where there is a chance to turn it round until Brexit happens, once it happens, and I, I can't stress this enough, the doors will close. And the extent to which the UK will be a hostile, potentially, third country because everything it's not allowed to get will be the fault of that, those beastly foreigners. What does that do for domestic relations for the millions of people who are living within the UK, the 380-odd thousand EU nationals within Scotland? What does it do for our guys across the wider European continent? We could see a really fractious, awful discussion about this sort of stuff. And as an example of what I'm worried about, and look at the... the the sock that was thrown in the direction of a few uh, MPs about this uh, Cities Left Behind fund, which was, what was it, 1.3 billion or something like that over an eight-year period? Yeah. And this that is was... Theresa May's attempt to bribe Labour MPs in the north of England, largely. Yes, and I don't begrudge anywhere money for redevelopment, and that's, that's grand. If the money needs to be spent, it needs to be spent. But what was completely lost in that discussion was that that was the replacement for the best part of 11 and a bit billion pounds of EU structural funds from subsidy. So we're going to lose the EU programmes to be replaced by something out of the domestic exchequer. And where the EU programmes have always strengthened local, regional government, uh, NGOs, civil society, against the member state capital, it's going to be our member state capital, which will be Whitehall and Westminster, totally in charge of the process. And I fear that... We may well look back to the halcyon days of Theresa May and wish that she was back in power, depending on who's coming next. Oh, God help us. <laughs> yeah, but, but, but have you seen the nick of them? Uh, once they get rid of her, geez, oh, they're a, they're, they're a rum bunch. And I'm afraid I, I don't see anybody getting serious about this stuff soon. And when you've got ministers with unparalleled, under the Henry VIII set-up power... Could you maybe to, explain the Henry VIII setup, maybe for for, for, for listeners to, who aren't quite familiar with what that is? To, to, to the extent that I can, what we've seen is the devolution settlements for Wales and Scotland, uh, where everything was reserved, everything was devolved unless it was specifically reserved. Now, what the UK government wants to do is to essentially flip that on its head and say that where there is something that we want to regulate on, be it agricultural products, you know, something I know well, being on, having been on the Agriculture Committee, I can readily see why the UK doesn't want to have four agricultural subsidy regimes across the UK while it accedes to WTO regs and does deals with other places. 
But that tramples the devolution settlement and puts our agricultural policy in the hands of people that we didn't vote for. That's a democratic deficit writ large. And that's going to happen across vast areas. We're going to see, because of parliamentary time at Westminster, a lot of stuff being decided by statutory instrument rather than a full debate of the House and proper legislation. So it will be banged through as a, a statutory instrument with minimal oversight of the House of Commons even by the MPs who would be able to amend usually, but they won't be able to in this case. So I fear for the, the period that we're talking about, you remember there's the transition and then there's the what comes next. Mm-hmm. During the transition, we remain within the EU framework, but without a say in how future EU rules are going to be set. And that also is going to be a big flashpoint because the EU is not going to stay still just because of our nonsense. So there will be a lot of crunchy stuff coming through from the EU in terms of emissions, climate change targets, you know, making making the Paris Accords real. And the UK will need to sign up to all of that while we're in the transition period. And at the moment it's slated for two years, but it could be extended, maybe. But then there's a democratic deficit in the other direction. You know, having been part of something where David and I vote on this stuff, we will be removed from that, that setup. The UK ministers will be removed from that setup as well. So there's a democratic deficit in a Scottish direction. There's a democratic de- deficit in a Brussels direction. Meanwhile, trade policy is still a live argument within the Conservatives, where there's some of them want to be in the EU single market, and there's some of them want to deregulate absolutely everything and pretend to be Singapore. That argument has not been won, so we don't know what the future's going to look like. David, you've been here since 1984. Yeah. So that's, that is 35 years you've been here. So personally, looking at the fact that this could be your last month here, just can you give me some of your personal reflections on that, what, 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 you, what you feel about it? And also, I guess, both you and Alan have staff working here as well who are also affected by this. What's the kind of mood amongst the British uh, MEPs here? Frustration, partly, because, I mean, I'm... In a, in a sense, in a fortunate position, at a very, very personal level, I was going to retire anyway in June of this year. So it doesn't have a big personal impact on me, but of course I'm devastated by the fact that the 35 years of work, I don't quite believe has gone up in smoke, but a lot of what we've achieved is going to be washed away by, by Brexit. But what the people I feel very sorry for are, in the context of this institution, are my staff, who have been very loyal, but who thought they could have been unemployed on Friday. They might be unemployed on the 12th of April. They might be unemployed on the 22nd of May. They might still be here till the 30th of June. And their lives are on hold. And these are uh, generally youngish people, late 20s, early 30s, who you know need to work, need to find a future career, and they just don't know what they're doing. And you multiply that across the whole of this, this parliament. There's a lot of uncertainty here. And then you go back home and you meet your constituents the Poles, the Czechs, the Romanians living in, in Scotland, who still don't know, for, I mean, despite the reassurances given, don't know yet for absolute certainty that they will be able to remain and work in the United Kingdom. Mm-hmm. And again, uh, streets of Brussels, less so, I haven't met many in Strasbourg, but I'm sure there's lots here, but streets of Brussels, you meet people, Italians and uh, uh, Brits who are working in, in, in uh, Brussels who don't know whether they're going to be allowed to stay and, and, mm-hmm. and work there. So you've got that individual uncertainty and then I'm sure Alan's getting exactly the same thing correspondence from companies who literally don't know what their future is in terms of their trading and all the rest of it and bear in mind this is not something that's going to happen when we leave there are ships literally in the high seas that don't know when they're going to reach their destination under what terms are going to dislodge their cargo uh, whether there's going to be customs duties whether there's going to be uh, health rules and so on that they don't 
currently have to meet because of part of the European Union that they might have to meet when they arrive at this destination. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, we have a trade deal with Korea. Um, if that create, if if there's if we crash out, if there's a transitional period, as Alan says, everything will stay the same for that transitional period. But if we crash out, a ship that left the UK uh, a couple of weeks ago will arrive in Korea in two or three weeks' time, and it might find that its cargo can't be unloaded because it doesn't meet the regulations anymore because all the rules have changed, the paperwork changed. I mean, this is this is not just kind of some abstract discussion that yeah. uh, we, we you know, Westminster's having on the, on technicalities. This is affecting people's day-to-day -day lives. And what do you make about Alan's point about the worry that the kind of divisiveness of this process, which is, let's face it, it's been quite divisive already, that it could stir up more kind of ugly sentiment, the likes of which some we've seen already. Is that something that's worrying you? I mean, clearly, I, I hope not. I mean, one of the encouraging things about the, the Brexit debate, and one of the few encouraging things, is various social uh, surveys, of, uh, attitude surveys, have suggested actually people are now more appreciative of the benefits of immigration than they were when this debate started. And that's a great positive. And I think that's, I'm pleased to say, particularly true in Scotland. People suddenly understand now that if it wasn't for the Poles or the Estonians or the Bulgarians working in our uh, old people's homes and, and residential uh, areas, uh, it's not that they are taking Scottish jobs. There'd be nobody to do these jobs and these people would not be getting the care they need. Similarly, there are nurses and our doctors or hospitality industry and so on, people are starting to understand that actually these are key people in our economy and we welcome them with open arms. So I think it's actually explained the benefits of immigration to, to some people, of course, there are always some who will not be persuaded, but I think it's actually made us more open to uh, our European neighbours. Alan, we were talking earlier, just before we came on to record this, about how one effect of the Brexit process has been the UK now has one of the most vocal, passionate and organised pro-EU movements in all of Europe. Uh, what does what, what Alan, or sorry, David has already kind of laid out what he thinks should happen next. From a UK perspective, if this can be salvaged, what what, what would your view on what the next steps must be? Well, I'd, I've said in my more bullish moments that if we are taken out, then the campaign to rejoin begins the next day. And there are some, a former colleague of ours, Andrew Duff, who's uh, now working for a, a part of a think tank in Brussels, He's campaigning for the softest possible Brexit because that'll still give us an opportunity to turn things back into a membership bid during the transition period, during which time we might not have seen that much divergence between the UK and uh, the EU. I have to say, if Alan doesn't mind me interrupting, that I have a worry about that theory because my own view is if we leave, no matter how sensible it will look to go back in and no matter how easy it might be to go back in, there will not be enough in the recent experience, I'm afraid, uh, leads me down this path, uh, there will not be enough courage among our political masters in Westminster to actually ever take us back in. It will take a, you know, 25, 30 years before a political party will have the courage to say, let's rejoin. I was quite struck today listening to the uh, debate in the European Parliament Chamber this morning that Tusk, Barnier uh, and several other uh, European quite important politicians, they were all very open to the idea of the UK either remaining or coming mm. back in at some point in the future. Mm. We haven't blotted our copybook entirely with them, have we? Yes, it's pretty blotted. Actually, we totally agree with what David said in terms of, uh, and confess that's, that's what was coming on to, oh, that sorry. I don't buy it either. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That I don't think there's the political maturity within particularly Westminster or, or the, the institutional knowledge about how the EU works in Westminster. And we've also seen 
from an EU perspective, once Brexit happens, it's tabula rasa. It, it, we lose the rebate, we lose the opt-out from the euro, we lose the opt-out from uh, Schengen and the Justice and Home Affairs stuff. Now, personally, I'm pretty relaxed about all of that. From a Scottish perspective, I wouldn't want any of those opt-outs anyway because we can deal with that on their merits. It'd be a tougher sell for the public, though. Within the UK, it will take proper political leadership, and I totally agree with David. I, I don't think that leadership within the UK is there. I think it might be in Scotland, but within a UK context, I think once we're out, we're looking at a decade or more of being out because remember, the Brexiters have got their punishment narrative well but well dug in. It's, well, you deserve a special deal. The world revolves around you. The world does owe you, to, owe you a favour when actually the UK is a medium-ranking state in a big old world. And it's us that's left the EU. And once we're a third country to the EU, the gloves come off. And during the exit negotiations, we have seen remarkable professionalism, politeness, forbearance from the EU side with the, 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 the UK's... Uh, political gyrations, but once that, once we're out and the UK can't rely on that solidarity anymore, the, glo- the gloves will come off. And uh, Giver Hofstadt has said a number of times, the, the EU you left will not be the EU you apply to rejoin. So we'll have that going on, and I, 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 I fear that trying to make a pro-EU case within that scenario will be a tough ask, and I don't see that there's any appetite across the, the Tories or Labour to, to actually take that on. In your speech this morning, which has been quite well received online, you talked, you asked your uh, MEP colleagues to leave a light on to, so an independent Scotland could come back to the EU. Talk me through how you see that process working if we're talking about a Scottish-only context here. Well, we are doing everything we can to turn Brexit round. Uh, Scotland's constitutional view of that, 62% across every counting area, was clear. Uh, we have bent over backwards, and David has put in a, a great shift. He, both of us are on the First Minister's Standing Council sure. in Europe. We've, we've been advising on how to try and find solutions. There's been Scotland's place in Europe. There's been the next Scotland's place in Europe. There's been the other Scotland's place in Europe. You know, the, there is no shortage of really heavy lifting that's been done to try and find compromises. Uh, for example, it's possible to leave the EU. That was all that was on the ballot paper, but remain within the single market and the customs union. That would be a less bad form of Brexit. It would also preserve freedom of movement, which we want to preserve from a Scottish context. Uh, really, I, I was in the Holyrood debate a couple of weeks back where there was a joint motion between Holyrood and the Welsh Assembly, the Senate. Sure. And every single party, Labour, SNP, Greens, Liberals signed up to the joint position that it was freedom of movement's really important for Scotland. So, so we want to maintain that. And we've put forward compromise after compromise. Mike Russell has played a blinder. He's been to umpteen JMCEs. The First Minister as well has spent a lot of time on this. Fiona Hislop, likewise. And I have to say, and it's, I'm trying my best not to make a political point, at every point we've been rebuffed by Mrs May and her entourage. I say entourage quite deliberately because they're not interested in opening up an intellectually honest debate about what the future should hold, because they're so busy trying to stitch a coalition in their own party together. So from a Scottish perspective, I think David and I were given evidence to Holyrood a number of years ago where you said the politics for independence in Europe have never been better, but the logistics have never been worse. And I'd I'd, I'd agree with an element of that. Our proposition in 2014 was predicated upon both bits of the UK, mainland, uh, remaining within the single market, the customs union and the EU. So the question was, do we get into the EU? Mm. And because of that, we had a rip-roaring debate about the EU stuff. So nobody can say that it wasn't part of the independence narrative. 
But if we're looking at a scenario where the the remaining UK is not part of the EU single market and, and customs union, then there are questions about the border at Carlisle to which we will need to have answers, which we do not yet have. In the same way as anything that works across the border in Ireland is an issue for us as well. Now, actually, our border is considerably easier to manage. It's only 70-odd kilometres long. There's only about eight crossing points, much of it's river. So solutions could have been found to that stuff and will need to be found to that stuff. But in order for us to formulate what that answer is going to be, and once we've got the answer, whatever it is, we will be able to defend it. If if, If the border looks like Norway, Sweden, if the border looks like France, Switzerland, whatever. But we need to have the answer. And we don't have the answer yet because of the chaos of the UK and we don't know what the UK's end point in this is going to be. So there's a number of my guys uh, are very keen to press the button on an independence campaign. I think there are logistical points that we need to have answers to and we don't have yet. And the second we press that button, people will legitimately ask us questions. And if we don't have the answer and say we'll sort it out later, well, I, I don't think that's going to cut it. How long do you think it'll take to come up with the answers? The answers could come really fast. We might reverse Brexit next week. If the House of Commons goes for revoke, which absolutely, along with David, is is, is my first option, then we're in a completely different scenario by the end of next week. And we'll have other issues to deal with. I'm, I'm still very much of the view that Scotland's best future is as an independent state within the EU. Ireland has proven to us what independence in the EU looks like. Yeah. Uh, Dublin, for the very first time in Ireland's history, has had the whip hand against London because it's part of the 27 rather than uh, in the relationship that had previously been the case. So independence in Europe remains a very strong prospect. Likewise, also, there's a lot of advantages that we will have, given that our proposition will be EU membership, single market membership, customs union membership. That makes us a really attractive place for British businesses to relocate to, in exactly the same way as the Netherlands, France, uh, Ireland are having a massive boost just now with companies relocating out of the UK. Well, you don't need to go that far, lads. You could just come up the road. But we won't be able to quantify those benefits until we see what the end state of the UK's relationship with the EU is. So the, there are questions as yet unanswered. David, you were shaking your head in agreement with a lot of that. I've read... And shaking your I, head in agreement? <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> nodding, your head, nodding your head in agreement. Nodding your head in agreement, I should say. Yeah, there's some mad skills yeah, going on over yeah. here. Yeah, he really is multi-talented. Um, you were nodding your head in agreement. I've read, in, uh, I've read some interviews with you where you've been talking, I would say, quite quite sympathetically towards some of what Alan's saying there. What, 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 give, give me your personal view on the independence debate in Scotland okay. as it stands now. I mean, well, first, just before we do that, just make a point that the only reason that Article 50 can be revoked is because the case that Alan and I and four other Scottish uh, politicians took, uh, and that's the only reason it's an option, uh, and yeah. people should be reminded of that. Secondly, actually, I have my differences, obviously, with the SNP government but not on Europe. I think the way that they have represented us in Europe has been from the top drawer. I mean, we, Alan himself in the Parliament has made Scotland's position extremely clear. The First Minister has been active and I'm full of praise like Alan for Mike Russell and the work that he's done in terms of Mm -hmm. promoting Scotland in Europe. So whatever other domestic differences I have in terms of the European debate, I think they really have set an example that Westminster would do well to try and follow. In terms of independence, in a sense, Alan has outlined exactly my dilemmas. I I have said quite publicly recently, uh, in fact, over the last couple of years, that if England really is going the way it appears to be going, I'm not sure I want to be a part of it. It looks like it's becoming a much insular country, that it's almost 
parts of it are almost becoming xenophobic, that it's mm-hmm. going to, and I think it's going to be, if we leave the EU with no deal or with a very bad deal, it's going to be a declining economy. And I'm not sure that's something I want to be hooked to. But how we, whether that's a case for Scottish independence or not, depends on the relationship we have with the European Union. Because ironically, the softer the Brexit, the easier, I think, independence becomes. But if we have a very, if, if the UK has a very hard Brexit, then it's at the moment for me difficult to see how that how we could join the EU without having a hard border with the rest of the the UK, and we still do more of our trade and more of our business with the rest of the UK at the moment. So uh, I'm not really giving it, and I'm not trying to it's, avoid the it question. Sounds, it's, it's not it, it's not a question you can give a yes or no. It answer sounds like you might vote yes with your heart, but your head still has some questions. Would you say that would be a fair synopsis? I think it's getting closer to that. I think um, I think even with my heart, though, I'm still. My whole, all my politics has been about bringing people together. So I've been in favour of the European Union. I've also been in favour of the, the UK Union. But I'm just wondering if that union is the UK one is worth saving anymore. I guess that's where I'm still both in my head and my heart debating. Do you think we're getting maybe to the nub of what uh, the SNP and the Yes movement in Scotland are going to have to grapple with going forward, which is pretty much what you laid out there as well, that... The Brexit process has been a great illustration of the political argument you would make for independence about being in charge of your own destiny and not uh, not having democratic the democratic will of Scotland overruled by votes elsewhere. But but also but also the Brexit process by its very nature makes independence for Scotland practically more difficult. Do you think that's kind of where we're getting to? I think it makes it difficult right now to answer the questions, but once we see what the end point is, we'll all be able to take a view. And David, I think, makes a lot of very good points there. And one of the things we're seeing in the Yes movement is that we're seeing a lot of people who are telling their personal stories about no to yes, and I'm, 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 I'm a yes or now, all of that sort of stuff. Remember, the vast majority of SNP people weren't born into a faith. You know, I, I wasn't always a yes or myself. You know, I, I came to the view that independence in Europe, note the independence in Europe, independence outside of Europe, I don't think is the same prospect at all, was the best thing to do after working for the Labour Party for a while. I volunteered for a local Labour MP, I volunteered for the Dems for a while as well. Learned that lesson. But <laughs> You've never met a party in your life. <laughs> yeah, but, but I've only ever joined one. Uh, yeah. And that, that was while I was a student, and I, I, I was always small p political interested in mm. how things worked. But wasn't quite sold on the national question because I didn't feel Scotland, you know, mind, I, I, I'm from 1973 Glasgow, I, I, I don't feel Scotland was oppressed, I didn't think that we were necessarily going to see an upside to independence, but that changed with the re-establishment of the Holyrood Parliament, and I had joined the party in 1996 having done an internship in Brussels where it became clear to me that we're already seen as a quasi-independent thing anyway, so let's make that real. So, So in terms of the, the journey that a lot of people are on right now, I think there's a big chunk of Scotland has been shaken in their views. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's it's not necessarily any more formed than that in a lot of people. Uh, a lot of people, in, in the independence referendum, I spent most of my time uh, Newington, Marchmont, Morningside, and Doos, Edinburgh, where you know, some of our activists might not have lasted that long, but I, I could put in the slog. And a lot of people who are still in touch, and that, that's where I live in Edinburgh, uh, are still in touch in various ways, who were very firmly no at the time, largely on the basis that they weren't hostile. I don't think most people were hostile to the prospect of independence. I think most just weren't persuaded of the need for change. 
because the UK is not a bad place. I don't want to risk my European status. I, I don't. I want to be part of a solid economy. I don't see the need to to to, to enter into the uncertainty that independence has an element of in that that it, it degree, involves a degree of change. They're now really looking hard at this stuff, and the the strongly pro EU elements, particularly Edinburgh. I'm calling a number of folk accidental gnats. Mm. That. Well, if, it, if 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 independence is the only way to keep my European my Europeanness, well, I'm for independence now, and it's like great. There's also been we we need to admit a wee bit movement in the other direction, and I think that would come back pretty fast with a decent campaign. But the, un, unless we have the logistics pinned down, and we've, we've set the precedent on this, we did Scotland we did uh, Scotland's future the 350 odd page prospectus. 350? 650. Oh, there we go. I, I, you no, forgot that was, about that last that was, 300 that was, pages. Yeah, it was, a, it was a 350 was on the side of the bus. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that was our first mistake. But, but, but we're not going to emulate the Leave campaign with airy promises that we, we don't know if we'll be able to fulfil. We will put a prospectus to the people of Scotland that allow the people of Scotland to kick the tyres of what the proposition is. There are elements of that prospectus that are as yet unclear because we don't know what we're becoming independent from as yet because of the chaos within the UK. Which is why it grieves me when I'm debating with Tory politicians who are so desperate to ram home the no to India F2 stuff, which is distracting from the real world consequences of the referendum that they inflicted on us with a hypothetical one that isn't happening yet. So I, I, I think so the first we're mini- in transition in this. So stuff. the First Minister has said that she'll update the Parliament shortly on her next steps on a referendum. I guess whatever happens with Brexit, she's got a hard deadline at the end of this month because she wants to have said something before the SNP party conference in Edinburgh. What would you like to hear her say? Well, that, that is above my pay grade, so I'm, I'm, I'm guessing on that one as well. But uh, I, I think a realistic assessment of where we are, she's been pitch perfect on this throughout. Her uh, last speech uh, on the European debate, which I was at in Holyrood, Tapley, was was absolutely pitch perfect in terms of here's the deficiencies of how we've got to this point. Here's the risks in terms of where we might be going in the future. And from an SNP perspective, we are, I know, putting the work in to have the proposition ready when the dust settles. But we're midway through a maelstrom at the moment. Literally, even as we speak, there could be about 10 different scenarios in the House of Commons tonight that will change the, the, the geography of where we're operating. So it it's difficult to, to enter into that until we see the dust settle a wee bit. And I think the dust will settle pretty quickly. Okay. I just need to finish up this uh, because time's marching on. But I'll, g- I'll give you the the last word, David. What's your what's your prediction for what happens? My prediction, sadly, as opposed to what I hope will happen, is mm. I think we will leave on the twenty second of May, okay. and I think we might leave on the twenty second of May with or without a deal. Okay. And how? Why do you think that? I just think the sands are shifting in the House of Commons when you hear the Jacob Rees-Mogg's and so on now. Uh, talking about half a loaf better than, or in fact he said, some bread is better than no bread, I think was precisely what he said. Uh, I think you see, despite the language suddenly getting a bit harder from the DUP, I think that language may be getting harder in order to facilitate the movement when it comes. I just feel the, the, the sands are shifting and she might get her deal through and I don't think that would be a good thing for the country, but I'm afraid I think that's where we might be heading. Okay, well, only time will tell. Alan, David, thank you very much for joining us. Great to see you. Thank you.